You all here? You guys making it through winter okay? Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, for our family personally, this has been the harshest winter out of nine. Uh, that's nothing to do with the weather. It's because Sam's Club's closing. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, but we will, we will rebuild. We will, we will survive here. So uh, if you don't know me, my name's Adam. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, uh, and I'm uh, just really delighted to share God's word with you today. Uh, if you're one of our regulars, good to see you here. And if this is your first time here, we're glad you're here too. So uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, we are blessed beyond what we can even say back to you, Lord. Thanks for life. Thanks that you've called us to be part of your family. And uh, you've given our lives meaning and value and just so many other delights besides. Uh, We want to learn how to walk with you uh, in a way that honors you, in a way that... um, shares back some love that you've shown to us. So uh, Holy Spirit, just perk up our ears and our hearts so that we could really hear your word and what you want to speak to each one of us here. Uh, Holy Spirit, I just pray that you'd pinpoint things in people's lives, in my heart too, of uh, where you want us to change and um, how you want us to be affected by your truth and your word. We give you the glory, Jesus. Uh, Be honored in this place. Uh, We love you and we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, think back on your life here for a second. And looking at your life up to this point, I want to ask you, what do you think some of the biggest game changers there have been in your life, either in your life or in your family's life that you've experienced so far? What I mean is, uh, what are some of those kind of key decisions that maybe you've come across uh, that have shaped the direction of your life or maybe even some major events that have happened in your life that have ended up having some far-reaching implications. Maybe for you, one of your game changers is your career choice. Maybe you signed up to join the military 10 years ago, and you know life will never be the same, right? Or maybe certain people in your life have proven to be game changers. Is your life significantly different because you said hello to one person, or maybe had to say goodbye to another? So that's probably not surprising, because we all know the way that people have a way of affecting us. Or has one of your game changers been something totally unwelcome, like maybe an accident or a medical diagnosis that has shaped your life ever since? Uh, Life's game changers come in all shapes and sizes, and it's true that not all of them are good ones. But today I want to talk about a game changer for our lives that is a good one, and arguably the best one of all time. What I'm talking about is Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. And although Jesus rose from the dead nearly 2,000 years ago, what he did impacts each one of us here today and ought to be the biggest game changer in any of our lives. Because he died from the dead, and by so doing he showed he is indeed King Jesus, our lives ought to be different than before we submitted our lives to him. But how? How ought our lives to be different That's what I want us to look at today. Now, needless to say, Jesus' resurrection changes a lot of things in our life, and we don't have time to go over everything. I mean, Jesus' resurrection changes how God views our sin, our relationship to God the Father. But what I want us to look at specifically here today is how does it change what we live for when we acknowledge Jesus as our King? How is Jesus' resurrection a game changer in those practical aspects how we live our lives, 
what we're all about, what we pursue from day to day. These are the specific questions that our passage is going to address, so let's go ahead and dive in. We are in the final week, yes, you heard me correct, the final week of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, our series on King Jesus. And if you have been with us here for now over a year in the Gospel of Matthew, you might not realize that, but there are other books in the Bible, and they're really good, but we'll get to them someday. Uh, Today, the task ahead of us is to finish off Matthew's Gospel. And so far in this gospel, gospel, the author, Matthew, has been writing to a group of mostly Jews, and he's been writing to them to show them that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Jewish king, the root of Jesse, the ultimate king in the line of King David. And last week, Pastor Mark brought us through the back half of Matthew chapter 27, which covered the death of Jesus and his burial in the tomb. And that's where we're going to pick up in Matthew's gospel today, uh, in the start of chapter 28. So if you haven't turned over there already in your Bibles, uh, please turn over to Matthew 28. We're going to be starting in verse 1. Matthew 28, verse 1. And uh, just as you're turning over here, here's the setting for where we're going to start reading. Jesus has died. The tomb is closed and sealed and guarded by a group of soldiers. But as we know we are about to witness the biggest game changer in history. Let's start reading chapter 28, starting in verse 1. It says, Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Okay, let's pause right there just for a moment here. Uh, One thing I just want to draw all of our attention to as we get into this chapter is the way that Matthew has set up this this account here is he's going to be contrasting two different sets of witnesses here uh, of the resurrection. The guards who are at the tomb on one hand, and then Jesus' disciples, starting with these ladies who arrive at the tomb first, and both of these groups of witnesses are going to see some amazing things, but they respond to what they've seen in totally different ways. Uh, in the first few verses, the two Marys, they're on their way to Jesus' tomb when this earthquake hits. And if we look at the other Gospels other than Matthew, we can see that these women are not at the tomb yet. They're on their way when the earthquake hits. But the guards are there. And this is what they experience and see. An earthquake. And then out of the sky, this shining being coming down, pushing away a big stone in front of what is now an empty tomb and then sitting on the rock. And the soldiers are terrified. And I think that this, from this passage can be so familiar to us because we might hear it at Easter or other times that we don't really stop to take it all in here. I mean, think about just the, the things that were going on here. First of all, there's an earthquake. Probably many of you have been in an earthquake, right? Things are shaking maybe falling down, breaking. Uh, Whenever I've been in an earthquake, I always, my first two thoughts are, how big is it going to get? How long is it going to last, right? And I've never been in one that's really, you know, that terrible. Um, But on top of this earthquake, you got to imagine seeing something coming down out of the skies, bright and shining that looks like a person here, and uh, that this being comes over and pushes a rock away. Uh, And now there's just this empty tomb. I mean, these, these uh, guards are totally scared, 
And this is a once-in-a-lifetime experience for them, no doubt. And it says that for fear of him, the angel, the guards trembled and became like dead men. And um, again, think experientially. Have you ever been that scared where your body is actually shaking? Um, I've been scared before, but I don't know if I've ever been that scared. But I imagine it would be like if you're getting charged by a bear or (laughs) you're falling or something really bad. And you think, man, this is it. And uh, they were shaking in their boots. And these were soldiers, so they weren't, this wasn't their first rodeo. They had seen some things before, and they were terrified. And Matthew's text doesn't state it explicitly, but I think what the guards did afterwards was run away. Uh, now, some commentators think that the guards were so scared that they eventually just passed out. Uh, but because none of the other Gospels explicitly mention the guards, I think it makes more sense that they ran for their lives. But whether they uh, fell unconscious or ran away, they drop out of our story for a little bit here. But that's this first set of witnesses. Now, in contrast to that, we get the second set of witnesses, uh, Jesus' disciples, starting with these women who show up, who arrive on the scene, and that same angel starts to talk to them. Let's read about this in verse 5. Verse 5 says, But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he's risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. And then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. So the first group of witnesses, the soldiers, they feel the earthquake, they see the angel and the empty tomb, and they are absolutely terrified. But the second group, when the women get there, they too are scared at first, but the angel tells them not to be. He says, Jesus has risen from the dead, just like he said, go check it out where he was, and then go tell his disciples. And get this, behold, he's going to meet up with you in Galilee. Uh, now, you notice how I said, get this, right? Because that's pretty much what behold means. But normal people today don't typically say behold, right? <laughs> kind of little Shakespearean or weird or something like that. You don't go to Fred Meyer, pump your gas with your rewards card, and you go, behold, a dollar off per gallon today, <laughs> right? No, you say something like, check it out. Listen up. I got a dollar off today. It's like, pay attention. But that's behold. Behold, get this. He's going before you to Galilee. Why Galilee, you ask? Good question. Hold on to that because we're going to come back to it. But for now, I just want you to see that in the text, it's drawing our attention that this rendezvous that Jesus is going to have with his disciples, where he gives them the Great Commission, is going to happen in Galilee. And there's a reason for that. So just pay attention there. Next thing. Uh, So when these um, ladies go running to tell the disciples, behold, check it out. Jesus appears to them in person. I mean, this is turning out to be quite a remarkable day, right? They, first, they take hold of his feet. They worship him. And he, Jesus basically tells them the same message that the angel did. He says, go tell my brothers. Sweet note there, my brothers, not my disciples, my brothers. And meet me in Galilee. And so they do so. So really what we have here in the first half of the chapter is these two groups of witnesses that are seeing the resurrection. Both groups have seen some pretty spectacular things. 
Think about what an awesome responsibility they would have been given just by the fact of what they've seen. I mean, who in this room wouldn't like to see with their own eyes what any of them saw? And yet, these two groups of witnesses are very different. They don't react the same way to the things that they've seen. And the sad truth is, is that this first group of witnesses, the soldiers, didn't handle their game changer, this once-in-a-lifetime experience, very well. Despite what they saw, many of these guards chose to honor a higher authority than King Jesus. This leads us to the unfortunate first point of the message, that those who reject Jesus as king often attempt to suppress his kingdom. Let's read again about the guards and see how they react to what they've seen, picking up in verse 11. Verse 11 says, While they, the women, were going, behold, check it out. Some of the guard went to the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, okay, hold it, right there in the middle of the verse, when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel. So there is a big meeting going on here. And again, just imagine that you are one of these chief priests and these soldiers come running to you and they're like freaking out. They're going, ah, earthquake, a shining being, rock, empty tomb. And you're saying, okay, hold on, calm down. We're going to have a little meeting here. So you get the other chief priests and elders together. And uh, you're saying, hmm, we got to do something about this here. And what are you going to do if you're part of that meeting? Well, my hope is that you come out of that me- meeting saying something like, maybe we were wrong. Who's ever seen things like this? And we knew that he said he was going to rise on the third day. Maybe we need to reconsider the evidence here. But, nope, it's not how it happens. It's tragic, really, but these elders and chief priests, they have this big meeting, and verse 12, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Despite all the evidence, Despite the amazing things these people had seen, these people conspire to lie and cover up the truth. They don't accept Jesus as their highest authority or bow before King Jesus. And because of that, they work to snuff out his kingdom. And the sad truth is, is probably many of us know people like this today. Maybe they've seen enough evidence that uh, should compel them to take Jesus and his resurrection and his kingship seriously but they don't want to have anything to do with Jesus and they don't want others to have anything to do with Jesus either. So these guards really are the contrast. They are the picture of what you and I are not supposed to be like. We're not to bow the knee to the authority of a sufficient sum of money or the fear of man or comfort or anything else. But they are not us. Most of us here recognize that Jesus has risen from the dead. And we know that he is king. But as we asked originally, how does that change our lives when we acknowledge Jesus as our king? How is Jesus' resurrection a game changer in terms of what we live for from day to day? Well, here's one way that our lives ought to be different when we acknowledge Jesus as king. If we are committed to the king, we show it by being committed to the king's business. And what is his business? It's making disciples, as the rest of the passage will show. In other words, 
people submitted to the king, go about the king's business of making disciples. Let's read this in the last few verses, starting with verse 16. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when, he saw, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Uh, Many of you already know this, but verses 18 through 20 are called the Great Commission. This is probably one of the most famous passages in the New Testament. So if you're not already familiar with it, highlight it and then highlight it again and then memorize it and get it into you. Because this is where Jesus both asserts his authority after his resurrection, but also gives his followers, and that includes us, our marching orders. And uh, a lot of us are probably already very familiar with the passage, but let's work through it a little bit here. Verse 16, again, it says, Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So what's this big deal about Galilee that I mentioned earlier? Why didn't Jesus just choose somewhere closer to where he had been risen from the dead, where the disciples already were? He could have had this conversation conversation, uh, in Jerusalem or somewhere nearby. Why is he making them go all the way up north to Galilee to give them the Great Commission? Well, there's a lot of reasons. First off, Galilee was the starting point of Jesus' early ministry with his disciples. But something's different this time around. Jesus rose from the dead. There's a bit, that's a big game changer. Jesus' resurrection shows that he's indeed king. And with that understanding, Jesus calls his disciples to a place they were already familiar with, Galilee. And it's like he's making them see that same place with new eyes. Things can never be the same again. Um, and maybe a lot of you have experienced something like this too. I was, I was uh, 19 when I became a Christian. I put my trust in Jesus. And uh, if you attend my adult Sunday school class, you know part of my testimony. I was a partying frat boy, right? And interestingly, uh, when I put my trust in Jesus, God didn't call me out of the frat house. I was still there for the remainder of my years in college. Uh, he did call me to change so the way I was living, the way I was thinking, Uh, and a lot of things about my life, but he didn't call me to move out. But he called me to be at that same familiar place that I had already known and see it again with some new eyes. And maybe you guys can relate to that too. Maybe for you, uh, you put your trust in Jesus. You say, yes, you are my king. And he says, well, look at your family. Uh, It's something you know well, but you need to look at that with new eyes. Or look at the people you work with, maybe in your platoon. See them with new eyes. Uh, so this is, this is our Galilee here. It's a familiar place that something has changed where he's calling us to. And what's different this time around? Well, uh, this is Galilee of the Gentiles, as Matthew called it, all the way back in chapter 4. This is the place of foreigners. It's a place of spiritual darkness. It's a place lowly and despised in Jewish eyes because of all the Gentile associations. If you're a Star Wars fan... In Obi-Wan Kenobi terms, you will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. I worked on that. And here, while the disciples are on this mountain looking above the Sea of Galilee, and they see these Gentile nations, 
and the doorway out to them from here, there would have been a certain kind of sting to Jesus' words here. They would have understood at least two things. They were saying, okay, I get it. We're entering a new season. We're entering a season of ministry here, just like in Galilee, just like in the good old days. But they also would have said, but something's different here too because Jesus rose from the dead. We're not just reaching Jews with the news of a Jewish Messiah, but we're supposed to reach all these people with the news that Jesus is king of the universe. Moving on, verse 17, it says, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this verse, but let me point out that the word, uh, the meaning of the word behind doubted is something uh, closer to hesitated. Either way, I think the same sense comes across. They doubted, they hesitated. It's strangely comforting that even this group of disciples, however many there were there, I think it was probably more than the 11 at this point, they were seeing Jesus risen from the dead, and yet they didn't have their faith altogether. They were still human, and amazingly, Jesus was ready to send them out as well. Verse 18, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's a lot of alls. Pretty comprehensive if you ask me. And Matthew's gospel about King Jesus has here a very nice statement of Jesus' kingship. It says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Couldn't be clearer here. Jesus is the boss. He is the one in charge of everything. This is the note that Matthew brings to focus at the very end of his gospel. Jesus has proven he's king and has authority by the fact of his resurrection from the dead. But notice here, Matthew doesn't end his gospels with, gospel with the words, and so Jesus and the disciples lived happily ever after. Right? Seems strange to us. I mean, that's, that's how you end this story. This isn't the end of a story. This is the beginning of a very new chapter and one that involves us. Jesus' king, kingship makes a significant difference in the disciples' lives, what they live for, what they're chasing down from day to day. Because he's king, because he's been had given all authority in heaven and earth, he has something for them and for us to do. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Now, uh, some of you might have heard this next teaching about the Great Commission before, but it bears repeating, even if you know it well. The main verb here in the Great Commission is not go. It's not baptize. It's not teach. The main verb of the Great Commission is make disciples. The other verbs kind of form an assistant kind of function. But we often hear the, the Great Commission more like, Go make disciples, right? That's how I heard it when I was a first Christian. But that's really kind of the wrong emphasis here. Yes, we are to go out of our comfort zones and cross boundaries and get messy and all of that. No denying it. That much is clear by Jesus bringing him up to Galilee and saying, go to all the nations. But the Great Commission should be properly be heard like, as you go, make disciples, of all nations. Making disciples is the main thing. 
And how do you do that? The other two verbs tell us, by baptizing them and teaching them. Baptizing them, as one commentator puts it, is a once-for-all decisive initiation into the Christian community. I'll read that one more time. It's a once-for-all decisive initiation into the Christian community. This usually happens as a result of evangelism, right? We hear the gospel, we understand it, we respond to it, we say, yes, Jesus, I want to follow after you, and we get baptized. This is a one-time start of your Christian walk kind of thing. But the other one, teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded, it's not just a one-time thing. This is an ongoing thing. It's never fully complete. It's a lifelong task that we should all be growing in. We're talking about a life of growing in our understanding of the scriptures and in obedience to our Lord. So the main part of the Great Commission, it's make disciples. We do it as we go, crossing those boundaries, reaching out to the people, and we do it in two main ways. We get people in and committed to the kingdom, and then we help them grow in obedience. Making disciples is what is on Jesus' agenda. He's the king, and this is the primary task he wants to be done. So we said, as we said earlier, if we're committed to the king, we're going to show it by being committed to the king's business. And that business is making disciples. That's one major way that our lives should be changed when we acknowledge Jesus as our king. We have a vested interest to make disciples for him. As we wrap up, let's just talk about application. How, how exactly can we go about making disciples for Jesus? How can we get people into the kingdom and then help them to grow? Uh, I've listed a few ways for you in your bulletin if you want to look there. Uh, and you can add to these suggestions. It's not an exhaustive list, but maybe brainstorm some more with your family or your small group. But here are a few practical ways that you can go about the king's business of making disciples. First one is to be a growing disciple yourself. And I think that this involves at least two areas here. I have... We grow in our knowledge of God's word and we grow in obedience. We need both. Yeah, we need to do what God wants us to do, but we need to know what that is as well. Uh, next suggestion for growing in discipleship here. If you've got kids, start with your kids. Disciple your kids. Start reading through the Bible with them and answering some of their questions. And uh, you guys know as parents that they might ask you some hard questions, right? They might say, well, what about? And you ask Really insert really difficult question here, right? And it's okay as a parent to say, that's a really good question. Let me research that and get back to you. But then when you do that, research that and get back to your kids. It's a chance for us to grow too as parents. Another thing we can do uh, to make disciples, pray. Uh, and this one's so straightforward, but man, isn't it hard to do in the real world? You know, prayer is hard sometimes. But there's a lot of different ways we could pray to make disciples. We could pray for ourselves that we grow in discipleship or that God would bring someone to help us grow. We can pray that God would help us to help others to grow. We can pray for people who are not yet in the kingdom. But this is something that we can all do. It doesn't cost any money, but it does take some time uh, and some uh, devotion to that too. Another way to make disciples, uh, give. Find out about a quality mission sending program and put whatever resources of time or money God's given you so we can make disciples as a team. Uh, a lot of the missionaries that we support here at Beth, uh, Bethel are maybe in places that are hard for a lot of us to get to personally. Um, but we can partner with our missionaries through our resources, 
through our prayers, by being concerned about what's going on uh, in places outside here of Fairbanks and by praying for them. And this last one, I think, is actually uh, the most challenging one, crossing some boundaries. And this is the as-you-go part of the Great Commission. We will likely have to get out of our comfort zone, get a little bit messy to fulfill what Jesus wants us to do. We might have to develop a relationship with a Muslim or homosexual coworker, or family member or neighbor. We might have to take some other uncomfortable risk, but this is part of God's great commission. And I just want to add on a personal note. Uh, personally, I find this the hardest one for me too. Again, I'll use Fred's as an example because we can all relate to Fred's, right? Um, sometimes you go to Fred's, say it's on a Saturday. Why do any of us go to Fred's on a Saturday, right? But you go there and it's crowded and you see a mass of humanity. Uh, people from all different walks of lives, ages, places in the world, and they all came up here to Fairbanks. And sometimes it hits me as it probably does you. You say, man, probably a lot of peop- these people don't know Jesus yet. But it's so easy to just kind of see someone in line ahead of Fred Meyer and think, oh, I know who they are. I can tell by the way they're dressed or by whatever. They're not interested in the gospel. One of the biggest challenges we might have is in our own heart to have it be broken by God, to care uh, for these people who don't know Jesus and who aren't part of the kingdom yet. That's where we were at one time. And if all of this All these ways of making disciples seem a little bit overwhelming for us. We need to remember the final part of the Great Commission, my favorite part here, verse 20. Behold, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Behold, listen up. I'm with you. I've got your back until this job is done to the end of the age. Jesus' words should give us confidence. Because he supports us as we make disciples for him, we can take those risks and venture out. I'll just end with one quick illustration here. Uh, when I was in college, um, I was about, uh, boy, probably 20, something like that. I had to take a PE class to graduate. So the class I took was called Adventure Games, and it was a really great class. It was a lot of fun. Uh, what you'd have to do is, it was basically ropes courses. We all got ropes training. So you learn how to latch people onto ropes and belay them and all this kind of thing. So you could do rock climbing that kind of thing. And then they threw you in a variety of situations as a team, and you'd have to work as a team and overcome whatever challenges uh, on the high ropes. And they didn't give you much help. They just said, okay, this is your objective. Figure out a way to do it. And one of the very first tasks that were challenges that we were given as a class um, after we learned how to use the ropes was the cowbell tower. Well, it strikes terror into you just hearing the name, isn't it? Cowbell tower. Uh, I joke. Um, What it was, it was basically a telephone pole. So you take turns. One person climbs up the telephone pole. It's probably 20, 25 feet up in the air. And you get up there, and there's a tiny little platform on top of the telephone pole, and you're supposed to stand on it. And you're like, hey, here's my class. And, oh, it's kind of cool out here in the forest and everything. But it's not called the cowbell tower for no reason. There's a cowbell. Okay, It's about five or six feet in front of you, dangling from a different rope. And your job on the cowbell tower is to stand on that little podium and get up the gumption to take that leap of faith out and smack the cowbell as hard as you can as you plummet down to earth. How does that sound to you? Sound fun? Terrifying? 
Well, let me tell you, for me, I'll be honest, it wasn't terrifying. And the reason why is because I knew my classmates had the rope. They had all been through the same training I had been through. I was latched in. I was connected. And I knew that they know how to use the ropes. And so when it was my turn to go up there, I could jump off and smack the cowbell. Behold. Listen up. Jesus has got the safety rope. And he is with us always to the very end of the age. So let's confidently do what he told us. Leap out. Smack that cowbell. And make disciples for him. Let's pray. Lord, what amazing dignity you give to us to let us be a part of what you're doing in the earth. As that passage in Isaiah said, that you're going to bring your justice to the ends of the earth and you're going to do it through us. That's very humbling. We thank you that you do have all authority in heaven and earth. And we thank you that you will not leave us or abandon us, but that you're with us to the end of the age. Holy Spirit, pinpoint for each one of us what you would have us do to make disciples for you. For your glory, Jesus.